Well, good morning. How do we know what we know? Um, great to have you back for this series set up every week by Pat, who is um, out there being the uh, Chicago Cubs fan, that uh, perennial Chicago Cubs fan that lives in, deep inside all of us, even you St. Louis Cardinals fans. So, uh, look, this is week three of the six-week series in which we're exploring the role the Bible has in um, helping us identify and embrace truth. So we're in this series. It is, a, it is a doctrinal study in one hand. It's looking at the first tenet in the statement of faith at Christ Church. It is an epistemological study because we're trying to figure out how we know what we know. And uh, I've been making a big deal out of the fact that there are seven big life questions, um, that these questions, you know, what, is, what matters most? Like, what am I supposed to be about? What's supposed to be most important? Who am I? Where did I come from? What went wrong? What's expected of me? What happens when I die? That the first six questions are all shaped by the seventh question, which is, where do I go for answers? How do I know how to answer the first six questions? How do I know? What I know, and so in week one, we were in John 18 and looking at the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And I said, look, we're living right now in a knowledge crisis. And the reason that there's so much tension out there is not just because people look at different news uh, sources. It's people look at different news sources because they have different worldviews. And people have different worldviews because they answer the first six questions differently. And people are answering the first six questions differently because they have different answers for the seventh question, the epistemological question, the where do I go for answers question. And then I noted that there are four categories. Some people opt for reason. Some people are, are really locked in on tradition. Some people are much more intuitive. And then we've got this category of revelation, this idea that God has given us answers. God has revealed himself and answers to these questions. And... Um, then last week, so that was the first week, last week we were in Psalm 19, and this is a, a, a magisterial psalm that talks initially, verses 1 through 6, which is where we were at last week. We were looking at the idea of general or natural revelation, this idea that God reveals himself through the things that he made. We can learn about the creator by studying the creation, and I said, uh, the, the amazing aspects of space and, and microbiology, all that testifies to the amazingness of God. And that this idea that we can study the, the creation to learn about the creator is what fuels the scientific revolution. Then I know there's limits to this. General revelation is um, it's soundless. It's not as specific as you might think. And then the last point, I said, look, and we can't deny all this information. We were in Romans chapter 1, uh, noting that we can suppress the truth. So, if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to uh, go now to Psalm 19, to the last part of, uh, of, to the last part of Psalm 19, which pivots. So, last week, verses 1 through 6, um, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of of his hands, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voices go out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, 
It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So this is, this is David commenting on natural or general revelation. Today we look at we look at supernatural or special revelation. And uh, there's a pivot. So now, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, the law of the Lord uh, refers to the Bible. Okay, in this case, it refers to the Old Testament. Obviously, when the, when the Bible is talking about the Bible, for the most part, not exclusively, we'll look at a couple passages, but for the most part, it is talking about uh, the Old Testament. One of the things we have to then think about is how do we get any sort of endorsement of the New Testament, and that's going to come out in the Lake Light Lecture uh, next weekend. So, but the point is, as opposed to the general revelation, which we've looked at, right, the, the heavens, the, it, it's declaring, but the, but the words are soundless, no, there's no voice. As opposed to that, the limitations, what we're being told here is the law of the Lord is perfect. It is refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So what we have here is classic Hebrew poetry. Remember, in Hebrew poetry, you don't rhyme words, you rhyme ideas. And so what we have is just a whole bunch of different terms that are all referring to the Bible, the law, the, the statutes, uh, the, the, the precepts, uh, all of these things, uh, what we're being told, all of these are aspects. They're not, they're not parts of the Bible. All of these are synonyms for the Bible. So um, law, statutes, precepts, commands, these are synonyms for the Bible. And so what we're going to see is that the writer is now saying, we've got general revelation, it's got value, it's good, but it's limited. We now are looking at special revelation, supernatural revelation. We're looking at the Bible. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart, and the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So we have all these couplets here, and, and often the, the, real, the real juice is in the second part of these couplets. Um, and if we were just to sort of tease these apart, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 12, we learn different things. It, again, the poet is coming at this, and he's just piling on these good things that special revelation, and I'll just pause here. I've made this point a couple times, but when we talk about special revelation, the highest form of special revelation is Jesus, okay? He is, uh, he reveals God the Father better than anyone else. Again, you go to the Hebrews chapter 1 for that kind of a statement. God, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. He's the radiance of God's glory, right? Nothing is higher than Jesus. So that's one part of special revelation. But what we're really focused on right now, what we're really focused on, and, and it's, it's also true in the first statement of, first article in the Statement of Faith at Christ Church, is the Bible. The, the, this idea that the Word of God, the 66 books that make up 
the Bible, 39 in the Old Covenant, 27 in the New. They were written over, right, over 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages and three different continents, that this book is our authority, that it is divinely inspired, and inspiration is not the best word here. It's more expiration. It's the breath of God. I'm gonna, we're going to look at that. But, but the idea is the, the writer, David, is saying, the Bible does all these things for us. It is all these things. You've got to understand it. So one of the things that he says is that um, the precepts of the Bible are right. And that, that word that's used there for right means like it's a straight edge. And it's a ruler. It's something you can measure other things against, which is one of the points the Bible makes about itself. In John 17, 17, Jesus will say, um, uh, sanctify them by their by the word. Thy word is truth. Okay, so the point there, in part, is that he doesn't say thy word is true, which is true. <laughs> it is true, but he says thy word is truth. It, he's he's saying it's not that 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 thy word is true, and you can measure it against truth and find out that it's true. He's saying. Your word is the standard. It's the measure. It's the right edge. It's the thing that you compare everything else to. And, and that's what John, Jesus says in the high priestly prayer in John 17. That's what David is saying here. Uh, so the Bible is the standard of truth. Then um, he says it revives our soul. And this speaks to, um, to the deep, who we are at our deepest levels, right? The, the soul, the psyche, it's our, it's our most um, sacred space. It understands us. It revives us. It gives us life. And uh, there's a, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this character, um, I think it's still Prince Rillian. I, I, he maybe becomes King Rillian. Uh, maybe he's King Rillian. I don't know. Uh, but he, uh, he's not himself. And uh, for, it's a complicated story, but just suffice it to say that there is a moment <clears throat> uh, every night where he gets tied to this chair. And uh, he's told he's got to be tied to this chair because he turns into a serpent. Uh, and it turns out he's actually tied to this chair because he comes to his senses during that one <laughs> minute. And he knows that he's sort of been kidnapped and he's not in his right mind and he is not himself. And uh, so he will implore the um, he will implore implore the travelers there to to break the chair so that he is freed so that he can become who he is. There's a sense in which the Bible does that for us. It helps us see ourself. Um, it makes wise the simple. I am going to guess that most of you have realized that you're smarter today than you were 15 years ago. That you are, uh, you are a better, hopefully, a better person. You have learned some things, not just, you know, analytical chemistry or, or advanced calculus or, you know, high uh, legal concepts, but you've learned things about life and you've learned things about yourself and you've learned about uh, how to be a better person. You've, you've, you've learned. So when you look back at yourself from 15 years ago, you go, yeah, I have grown. I have some regrets. I wish I would have handled that situation differently. 
than I did. I just didn't understand all the things that I understand now. So uh, I'm guessing most of you get that. And I'm guessing most of you have also perhaps at least occasionally realized that yourself, should the Lord tarry, should you live another 15 years, your 15 years in the future self is going to look back at yourself today <laughs> and say, wow, was I a little dense, clueless, uh, you know, not really tuned in to all the things that I now understand about myself and life and other things. So one of the claims of the Bible is that it helps us live 15 years in advance. Right. It helps make wise the simple. Um, and it brings joy, which is crazy because it's talking here about the law. And most people think, today especially, we have, we have really raced down this path in the last 20 years and in the last 20 months. We think, I will be happy when I am free. And our freedom we think of freedom as the freedom from responsibilities, the freedom from having to do anything, the freedom, you know, of discipline. I, I'm free of all that. In fact, that's not when we're joyful. In fact, the, the, the true joy of a life that is working, right, is coming out of a time when the law is shaping us. And we're leaning into discipline, and we're growing, and we're getting better. And so this, this passage... Psalm 19 is making all of these points. It is celebrating how much better special revelation is than general revelation. It is singing the praises uh, of God's word. So, goes on, um, verse 12, who can discern their own errors? The, the, the answer, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is not, we can't. Like we have blind spots. We, we, uh, we often do not see our own errors. Our pride, uh, our, our judgment, uh, our self-justification can often keep us from seeing our own errors. And then forgive my hidden faults. Um, keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Uh, then I will be blameless, innocent, uh, of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's so much here in Psalm 19. It is, it is a great psalm for you to uh, meditate on, uh, maybe to write out, maybe to memorize. There is, uh, there is so much here. I want to make a handful of um, observations or points that, that emerge out of Psalm 19 and that emerge out of what theologians would refer to as sort of a doctrinal or a systematic study of the, of the role of the Bible or of the authority of Scripture. So I'm going to make four points. Number one, the Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. Psalm 19 is one, you know, one case where the Bible is talking about the Bible. Uh, there are many others. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is a sort of classic one. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any twigged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, 2 Timothy 
has got a number of places uh, that sort of talk about this. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the servant of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places. I, I, I share this because, uh, first of all, it, it can surprise people. In, in a similar way to people being surprised to hear that Jesus had a lot to say about himself, that Jesus was his own sort of most frequent topic of discussion. Jesus also taught about other things. He, he taught about uh, the fact that we, we need to be humble. He taught about the fact that we need to care for the poor and the oppressed. He, he taught about the fact that we need to live today uh, in light of eternity, store up treasuring, uh, treasures in heaven. Uh, he taught about justice. He taught about a lot of things. But Jesus also had a lot to say about himself. And in a similar way, the Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. And it makes a lot of claims about itself. Now, <laughs> I bring this up in part because it's surprising. And I also bring this up because I know that some of you are going, seriously, is no one going to point out the obvious thing here that we are looking at what the Bible says about the Bible? Like, this is circular, hello, you can't do this. You know, you cannot assume uh, that, that something is true in order to prove the point that you want it to prove, right? You, you can't do this. So I want to just acknowledge that we are looking at what the Bible says about the Bible, and yes, this is circular. Now, for the record, I am not at the moment looking at what the Bible says about the Bible's authority to prove the Bible's authority. Okay? I'm, I, right now, I'm not going there. I'm simply saying we need to note that the Bible has a lot to say about itself and about its authority. Um, I also want to just point out and Thinking about our own thinking is not a lot of fun. Um, epistemology is not, you know, not a class that many people sign up for. Uh, so thank you for hanging in there. Uh, I'll keep this mercifully short. But when it comes to sort of objective uh, first principle kind of truth, you actually, it has to be circular or it's invalid. So let me just note. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to make two points. One is that you, you, you have to take some things, there are some axioms that you just have to accept uh, without proving them. Uh, you can't prove, so science cannot use science to prove science. Science cannot use science to prove the scientific method, right? I mean, early on, way, way back when they were coming up with the scientific method, they're saying, okay, we're going to test these things and, and use this hypothesis. And someone said, well, but, but everything that you're testing is sort of material or measurable or something, and you don't know, you can't use that test to prove that there's something that isn't material. So, additionally, if I were to use reason to prove that tradition is the most important way to understand truth, I would undermine tradition. 
I would have to use tradition to prove tradition, or I'm undermining the idea that tradition is most important, right? So look, there's a little, there's a sense in which some of this is word games. I simply want to acknowledge, absolutely, there are things that we're going to have to take by faith. We need to understand it when we're doing it. And I just want to, you know, call the question, yes, we're looking at what the Bible says about itself. I'm not using the Bible to prove the Bible. And I am, I am, I am pointing out, though, that if the Bible didn't claim to be the Word of God, that would be problematic. If the Bible didn't claim to have authority, that would be troubling. The fact that it claims to have authority doesn't prove that it has authority. But it's worth noting. So, um, I share all that to say, we're in Psalm 19. It's testifying to the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. We could look at Hebrews chapter 4. We could look at 2 Timothy. By the way, what I find the most persuasive uh, argument for the Bible, and we'll look at this uh, in a few weeks uh, in a sermon coming up, but what I find the most persuasive is the way Jesus treats the Bible and the way Jesus is always deferring to the Bible. When Jesus is questioned, he's always quoting the Bible. <laughs> and, and so there's lots of different ways that, we can, that I can make this first point. The Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. Point number two. It doesn't just talk about itself. It makes really big claims. So uh, I write about this in the book. We, by the way, I hope that you're taking advantage of the different uh, supplemental resources that we're trying to provide on this topic because it's, it can be a little bit heady, but it's also incredibly important, and I think especially right now. It's very timely. I already tried to claim credit for being really trendy uh, it's just a very timely topic. We're in a knowledge crisis in this world, and you have to figure out, what am I going to put my weight down on? And so um, I, we're, we've got this stuff. One of the things that is releasing a chapter a week is the book that I've written on this. And um, so I, I tease these out a little bit more there. But um, the Bible makes a handful of claims. First of all, it claims to record the words of God. There are, there are some quotation marks, uh, so to speak, in the Bible where it says, you know, Genesis 12, and the Lord said to Abraham, or in Exodus, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, or in, in, um, uh, by the Jordan River, and the Father said to the Son, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we have this idea that we hear the, the voice of God speaking from heaven to people. And so the Bible puts some quotation marks around certain statements claiming to record the word of God. Um, in a like manner, the Bible suggests that God speaks through the prophets, so there's three offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus will perfectly fulfill all three of those. Uh, and, but repeatedly, uh, I think like 3,000 times in the Old Testament, we will have these statements where the Lord said, he's speaking through the prophets. Okay, so the prophets were his spokesmen. Priests represented the people to God. Prophets represent God to the people. The prophets speak for God to the people. And we see that, that the words of the prophet are understood to be the words of God. And we'll have similar kinds of, of uh, 
um, sort of credence given to the words of the apostles. The Bible also claims, not just to record the words of God, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Now, listen, that's, that's, that's a, a fine distinction, but it's not a distinction without a difference. So um, I'm not repeating myself. Beyond the claim that the Bible contains the word of God, the Bible claims to be the word of God. It claims to be all 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New. It claims to be divinely inspired. And again, the word inspiration uh, is, um, can be a little bit of a rah-rah word. You know, again, it's the politician gives an inspiring speech or a football coach gives an inspiring halftime talk. Uh, and so the, that's not actually the Greek word. The Greek word is, is not inspire, it's expire. It's like the breath of God. The voice, um, sound is the expiration of air in your lungs through your vocal cords. And so the Bible claims to be the uh, word of God. It claims this divine authority. Um <clears throat> uh, it makes other claims as well, right? I already mentioned it claims to be truth, not just true, it claims to be truth. It claims to have authority over us. We're going to see this in the last sermon in this series where we talk about the fact that, uh, that the Bible really sort of makes these demands. It, it's not, we don't worship the Bible. The, 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 I, I, we got to be really careful when we talk about the Bible. We don't want to fall into... Bible idolatry, uh, the Bible is, is not literally alive. It is living and active. There's a sense in which it is altogether different than any other book. But, uh, but the authority is ultimately God's, but that authority can rest in people. It can rest in the Bible. And so um, we see that the Bible is going to make demands of obedience. We're going to see the Bible, and the Westminster Confession pulls this out, that the Bible contains Everything we need to know doesn't answer every question that we want to know, but everything that we need to know in order to live faithful lives. So um, the point is, the Bible is not claiming to be uh, another opinion among many. It isn't claiming to be true most of the time or true for some people all of the time. The Bible is claiming to be true, capital T, true. It is making a claim in this postmodern world where there supposedly is no universal truth, no, no meta-narrative. We've all got our own personal narratives. The Bible is claiming to be ultimately true. And I would just, this is not for today, but I just qualify this and say uh, that that means in the end, when all information is known, we will find that the Bible in the original autographs, properly interpreted, that's a big point, properly interpreted, always true, never false in what it claims. So we got a lot of work to do. I think when it comes to science and, and, and scripture, right, science, there's a sense in which science is going after truth and the Bible is going after truth. And in the end, I believe that there, there will be no conflict. 
at all. Right now, there are times when it looks like there's conflict. Either getting the science wrong or understanding the Bible wrong, because I believe all truth ultimately is God's truth. And so uh, the Bible is uh, making big claims about itself. The third thing I want to say is, I believe that the Bible is uh, what it claims. I believe that God has revealed himself to us. I believe he does that through nature. I believe that he does that in super nature ways through the book. Uh, I believe, um, again, the highest form of God's self-revelation is Jesus, but I believe that this book is unique and expired and that it is our pathway forward. And I believe that, uh, that we have got to be it, we've got to be students of the book, that if you want to know what is ultimately true, and it will ultimately prove out uh, that you need to be a student of the book. So uh, it's not a magic book. It's not a book that you can treat um, like you just pick it up and, and take things out of context. You know, we'll talk more about that, but I do believe. And there have been a couple times in 40 years uh, one early on where I had, to, I had to wrestle with whether or not I believed this, and then another about 20 years ago when I really went hard at it again and tried to bring my questions and my confusion and doubts and pushed on these things. And ultimately, uh, I could work out lots of questions. I couldn't work out all of them, but you know, there's also questions on the other side. And I sort of ended up finding myself <clears throat> doing what Billy Graham did uh, and I'd heard that he had done this. He had had that sort of um, existential moment in his life where he, where he was trying to figure out if he could trust the Bible. And he finally said, Lord, I'm, I'm just going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to trust you. Uh, I'm going to trust that it's true. And so his famous refrain as he was preaching was, you know, da-da-da-da-da, but the Bible says, you know, so, but the Bible says, but the Bible says. So he was very much a, um, you know, relying on the Bible. So um, that brings us to the fourth point, and that is <clears throat> you are also going to have to decide where, what you're going to put your weight on. And uh, if you don't decide, then it's just really easy to get uh, uh, sort of swept up in, in whatever, is, whatever we're swimming in at the moment. Right, you can't ask a fish what it's like to be wet because they don't understand what it, they don't understand water. Uh, it's everywhere, and so <clears throat> I think at this moment, more so than in previous times uh, that I can think of, we have to be really alert to the different things that are shaping how we quote know what we know. And uh, so I want to say that the Bible has a lot to say about the Bible. Uh, that when you dig into it, you find that it makes really big claims uh, about not just being a, a great book, not just being one guide among many, not just having, not even just having the words of God, but of being the word of God. And uh, it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And I have made that decision and crossed that line and said, yep, I'm in. That's, I, I'm, I, am, uh, I redirect myself through this book all the time. And that is one of the big questions that uh, I hope you are alert to more than you might have been before this series started. So next week, I'm going to share the reasons why I believe that the Bible is what it claims to be. And uh, so, 
right now I just want to say, men and women, God, God has reached out. Right? He has reached down. He has revealed himself. He is reaching out to you. And he does that in a variety of ways, but principally he is trying to communicate ultimate reality and truth to you about himself and about who you are and about what matters and about what happens to you, about all those things. He has given us the answers in this book, and he's given us those answers because he loves you. And this may be a difficult time. You may have lots of questions. You may be confused about lots of things. I, I get that, and I'm sorry. All I can say is um, uh, the wisdom that you find in this book is unmatched for navigating the challenges that you're facing, and for communicating the love a father has for his children. Let me pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be uh, more thoughtful students of it, that, uh, that your word would guide our steps, would guide our heart, would reshape our heart. Help us uh, to be sanctified as, as, Lord Jesus, as you prayed. We'd be sanctified by your word. Your word is truth. Uh, guide us, direct us, remind us of that. We pray in Christ's name.